Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Lucinda Duncalf, who is the founder and CEO of Aboveboard. She is also a serial tech entrepreneur with over 25 years of impressive experience. Okay, let's get started. Lucinda, really happy to have you here on the show. Uh, you know, you you may not realize this, but you are a rare species, right? A serial tech female entrepreneur, right? You know, I know like a few others of those, and there's maybe maybe 500 on the planet that fit that bill, right? It's probably true. I never think about it that way, but if you look at the numbers, that's probably true. Uh, and hopefully we're changing that slowly but surely, hopefully rapidly, um, but we know these pipelines take time. And role models like you are really important uh, to, to really highlight because um, unfortunately there are at this point and historically so few of them. So well, thank you. Uh, so why don't we get started? You know, tell us tell us about your entrepreneurial journey, um, and then we'll we'll I'll ask a few questions and we'll take some questions from uh, the audience. Yeah. So I think my entrepreneurial journey is actually not particularly common. It's not quite representative. I grew up in Brooklyn. And I didn't do any of the normal selling lemonade or whatever. I was, though, the kind of person who would just do what I thought I wanted to do. So um, I'm really tall and I played basketball and there was no middle school basketball team at my school. So I started a middle school basketball team. So I guess I had a little bit of that go make it happen gene. Um, but I really my parents are artists and I just really didn't wasn't interested in business. And then completely luck. When I graduated, I graduated college in 1985. So PC was brand new, tech was brand new. All, all the things you think about now with the internet, just none of that existed. And I took a job as a secretary at what turned out to be, this was in Philadelphia, what turned out to be a San Francisco-based startup company. We had proprietary hardware and software for voice response. This is when, to date myself really terribly, worse than the, the date does, when touch-tone telephones were brand new. Uh, and so this was technology that let you interact using the touch-tones. And uh, I was the 12th employee based in Philadelphia and had an amazing experience there. The company grew really quickly, was very successful, ultimately sold to MCI. And I just had lots of opportunity as part of that. So I became a regional manager. I became a, moved to San Francisco, became a product manager. And I still didn't know that this is what I wanted to do, even though I'd been in it for four years. I then applied to graduate school and I applied to PhD programs in art history and psychology. And I applied to business school, only one, only Wharton, because um, I really just wanted to go back to school. It wasn't even about learning. I just wanted to, I love school, wanted to be back in school, ended up deciding to go to Wharton because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it didn't make sense to commit to five years if I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had a transformational experience there. I think it's very rare. Most of the people who go there really already know that that's what they're doing, they understand it. And it was there that I realized that I had uh, two key skills that were valuable in business. The first was common sense. Um, and, and maybe that is a hallmark of being female, I would argue too, is you just sort of things are, a lot of things are obvious to you. And the second is leadership which I had learned really primarily through athletics. Um, I, I played lots of sports, including basketball through college. 
And that made me realize, oh, I actually have something for this. And really importantly, I learned there, mostly through public policy courses, how capitalism drives society and came to see that as a, as a tool to better the world, which made me feel good about being in business. So here we are, I could make some money, which was really great because that wasn't a big part of my upbringing. So it was, I could make some money, I could make a difference in the world and oh, I think I could be good at this. And I knew I wanted something smaller, but I had crushing student debt, kind of the same levels that kids now come out with. It was more unusual at, the, at that time. And so I had to take a job. I took a job at a company called SEI Investments, had an incredible five years. I had seven jobs in five years. It's like a mid-sized company. It was about 1,400 people, maybe 100 million in revenue at that time. And I really learned there. I really learned how to manage. Then the internet happened. So I started trying to shoehorn the internet into every project that I was working on at SEI, but it wasn't yet a fit, uh, right? Um, and I got a call from a headhunter to go run product at a little company called Infonautics. Infonautics was a very early internet company. They had been founded using um, online services like CompuServe uh, and AOL. And we had transitioned, we were, tra actually I was hired as part of transitioning that to the web. And really importantly there, I worked for Josh Koppelman who went on to found First Round Capital after he did half.com. Um, we took that company public in the summer of 1996. It was one of the very earliest internet IPOs. And then the critical thing happened. And I like to share this story in this way because I think it gives people who aren't the idea people, but want to participate in the startup world, um, a great um, sort of boat of confidence. So I was never the idea person. I had known since Wharton that I wanted to be a CEO. And being a CEO of startup is, if you're not the idea person, it's actually a really hard gig to get the first time. Once you've done it, you can get hired again. But the first time, it's really hard gig to get. So I'm at Infonautics, growing like crazy, super happy. And uh, a friend of mine from SEI called. Turned out he was on the board of directors of a little company. And I put it in air quotes because the board was the founder, an amazing human being named Skip Shuda. It was the founder, his mom and dad, who were a school teacher and a homemaker, um, and Rafe, my friend. So they were looking for a marketing person. I went out and met, uh, it, the company was in Elverson, Pennsylvania, which basically is the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, far west of Philadelphia. And uh, I heard all about it. It was online banking. This was really early in the internet era, right? This is 96 now. Yeah, I went to Infonauts 95, this is 96. And um, I love Skip and I didn't think he was a CEO. So I told him, you know, this is a great thing. I'd love to, I'd love to come work with you, but I think you need a CEO. And he asked me what I should be, he should be looking for in a CEO. And I said, you should have taken a company public before and raised capital before and all these things, none of which I had uh, and left. And I really thought, boy, I really hope they call me once they find that CEO. And to my complete shock and eternal gratitude, Skip called me on Monday. I went there on a Saturday, called me on Monday and said, we agree with you and we'd like you to come do it. And that was my break. So I went out and did that. We had a great run um, at Destiny. Very long story. Uh, we ended up winding that company down when it had $15 million of cash in the bank. Very strange story, which I'll skip. That was sort of what happened in those, right? We had the dot-com bust 
a boom and then the dot bomb bust and it ha that's happened during the bust. Um, and I went from there to co-found a company called Turntide, it was an anti-spam company. And similar to Destiny, and again, uh, good news for those of you who aren't the idea person, I, I had a friend who knew a guy who was working on anti-spam. And this was 2003 when we started and spam was a crazy problem. We, it was a really unique solution. The guy, David Brewson, again, fabulous human being, brilliant. One of the, maybe in the top two or three smartest people I've ever known. Um, we got money there. Josh actually um, invested in that personally. This was before first round capital existed. And it was like riding a rocket ship. We used to joke internally that you better be wearing asbestos underwear because you're riding a rocket ship. And we ended up selling it. We put uh, $750,000 in angel investing in it. We sold it for $28 million five months later to Symantec. It was just crazy. Uh, and I really thought at the time I was going to retire. I really thought like, this is great. My, I have two girls, they were little. I thought this is all perfect, I'll stay home. Uh, and that lasted literally three weeks, two of which were vacation. And I just thought, oh, I'm, I'm not cut out for that at home. I mean, we're gonna, I'm just gonna go do this some more. And then since then have done it again and again until I really, really thought I retired um, in the end of 2018 and have now just this year founded a new company called Above Board, which is an inclusive platform for executive hiring. And I could not be more excited. I think it's the biggest opportunity I've ever had. And it is a thousand percent mission aligned. Um, so here I am again. That's the, that's the whole arc. That is, uh, that, as I said, it, it's an amazing story and, and really very special, right? And, and very uh, unusual, right? Again, for someone, um, for a female to, to have all those I think, experiences. I think all it is, James, is I'm old. And if you manage to survive <laughs> enough years doing this, you uh, you just accumulate these experiences. Oh, my God. So tell me, so you see a lot, right? Because you've been in this industry for so long, right? So your story is that we're going to talk about Bob Borden in a second. But let's talk about the how the pandemic has affected the startup community, right? Because you've seen it from Philly to New York and, and beyond. Yeah. Right. So talk to us about. So and again, you've seen a lot of ups and downs over the years. So give us a sense for how you view uh, where we are today. So what I'm seeing in the market is that it's a tale of two cities. And for some small set of companies, it's the best of times. For another set of companies that's not as small, unfortunately, it's really tough. It's tough because clients have spending freezes. It's tough because it's harder to hire. If you're trying to do that remotely, it's, 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 I think, harder to raise capital for lots of folks. Um, I also think, though, that there's a huge chunk in the middle where entrepreneurs are actually deciding how much impact this has. So um, if, I, if I share my own experience there with Above Board, we, we funded the company first in May. So, it, you know, in, literally in the middle of it, we'd started working on it really in January in, in uh, earnest and got funding in May. We're still just three of us. And immediately out of the gates, I was hearing from enterprise prospects, hiring freeze, no budget. Okay, that's not gonna work. And so instead of continuing to bang on that door, 
we looked at where can we sell, right? Who does have money? How does it work? And we realized that we could go to investors, to private equity investors and venture capital investors as clients. And in fact, once we did that, it's been COVID and, and, the, and the lockdown have actually been huge accelerators for the business because I can sell so much more easily online. I don't have to go visit. So I think there's there's there are definite groups where it's been great. There's there's a big group, unfortunately, where it's really tough, right? If you're in hospitality or all these verticals that have really been hard. But I think every entrepreneur should look in the should take a look and say, even if it I feel like this is hard, what can I do to flip it around and use it to my advantage um, instead? No, and if you look at funding stats, that that reflects that same thing. Funding has actually not at the early stages slowed down precipitously. So there's still money out there to get if that's if that's the stage that you are. Right. So tell us the geography as far as Philly versus New York. Do you see big differences in the startup uh, ecosystem? Absolutely. So what's happened, it's always been Silicon Valley, the rest of the world. And if we go way back, Boston was a very strong second. I don't think they're a strong second any longer. What has really changed, especially in New York, is New York has just been on this ascension. And New York has a big benefit in that it's a very diverse economy. So lots of financial services, obviously lots of tourism, hospitality, all, all of that stuff. Um, and that has been really good for the startup scene because all your, you've got prospects and all the rest all right here. There's a, in, there's a, uh, density in the ecosystem that you don't have in other places. Philly, unfortunately, you know, has had a harder time. There was a time back when in the safeguard era, so sort of pre and through the internet bubble, where there was a really strong community in Philadelphia, really centered around safeguard. Then it got nicely diversified. And there's some other really great investors there. Osage Capital comes to mind. Obviously, first round is a very top, top investor, but most of their folks aren't actually in Philly. Josh is, but the others aren't. So it's, it's a little bit of a rockier road in Philly. It's, it, um, the funding's not there so much. What Philly has, in a, I think, a huge advantage, and I always loved starting companies in Philly, is the work, uh, is the people. There's a real, like, roll up your sleeves, get it done, build. I've always said in Philly, you can build a real business. People are focused on, are you actually delivering real value to real customers? Are you getting paid for that value? Versus the Silicon Valley, which tends to be more about hyper growth, boom or bust. We're going to be less likely to have these crazy wins, although we've got GoPuff now, right? Which is a crazy win. Um, and you're going to be more sustainable. So employees are more loyal. You're not going to just lose your people. You know, the second you get into trouble uh, the way you do in Silicon Valley. So I think they're very, very different personality wise. As far as the impact of COVID, I think it's kind of the same story in each geography. It's probably a little bit tougher in Philly just because you don't have as much happening. So you're less likely to have one of the big bumps. Although, again, GoPuff is stand out there. Um, so, yeah, they're very different in tone and personality and infrastructure. Right. So tell us about above board. You know, how did you, how did you. My baby. Exactly. And why and where it is and where it's going. So I really did think that I, I really thought I'd retired. And what people like me 
typically do is you go into this third phase of life and you join more boards of directors. And I was coaching CEOs and you sort of have this wonderful, flexible, you know, live wherever you want lifestyle. And I really thought that's what I was going to do. The key driver for my uh, retirement was actually sort of a sad story, but it's turning, it's turning over, it's turned around now is I have two daughters I mentioned earlier, one of them 17 and she had a really terrible case of Lyme disease. So one of the things I'd encourage your listeners, watchers is I'd be happy to connect about that. Um, it has been a really difficult journey. We finally found some treatments that have been helping her. So she's getting better and better, which is an, really important in, um, in terms of my story and why I'm able to do above board. Um, one of the things that is different, I don't think of myself as a female entrepreneur, um, I think of myself as an entrepreneur and I measure myself against the bar of all entrepreneurs. That said, you could look at me an idiot not to look at all the statistics and see there's not something going on. There's some reason there's only 3% of us getting venture capital or whatever the number is today. Um, and one of the challenges is managing home and work. And the reality is even as a CEO, I still carry more of the burden of home than my male peers do. I'm pretty sure they don't worry about what groceries are in the fridge. So um, my husband, Russell, had stayed home when our girls were little. We were out of that phase. He uh, was a very early employee at DuckDuckGo, which is doing great. So he's got a big job with big responsibility now. And when India got sick, she really needed mom home. And so I, for a while, was doing both. I had never before in my career felt this real pull that many working women feel like you're never doing a good job at either place. You don't have enough time. You're stretched too thin. I had really never felt that. Honestly, I'd certainly made some difficult trade-offs, but I was always comfortable with those trade-offs. I always felt like I was making the right decisions. I got in a place where I was not, where I was, I felt exactly like that. I'm not being a great CEO because I'm not hopping on an airplane at every, every second. And I'm definitely not being a good mom. Thus the retirement. So I was still, the reason I share all that is first of all, for any limeys out there. And second of all, because it's important in the story because I, I never felt done inside. It was more circumstances were demanding that I back off. So I was doing exactly what I said. I joined some boards and one of them was uh, a little company in New Jersey called Thrive TRM. Thrive is a company within True Search. So True Search is a super fast growing retained executive search firm that had, we had used to place my uh, replacement at, at Monetate. And um, they are very innovative and had, among other things, invested in this platform, Thrive TRM, which is basically CRM for executive recruiters. And so I started working with them, ended up as executive chairman, working half-time basically as co-CEO with the president there, having a great time. And we started to ideate with Brad and Joe, the co-CEOs of True Search, around sort of what do we do longer term, what's the opportunity? And came to see the market for retain for executive search. So if people don't know how that works, and most people don't, when a company goes to hire an executive, there's really only two options for them. They can either hire a retained executive search firm and they will pay that firm a third of first year compensation. So it's really expensive, right? Because you're only, they're only, it's only done for very highly compensated people. So you're talking about a hundred, 150, $500,000. If you're not going to do that, you use your own network. You do it yourself. 
And there's no other options in between. There's just nothing, it's this big void in the industry. So that is a very interesting business opportunity. It's a $21 billion business, huge opportunity. We started working on that. And then um, we had this realization that there's this second key um, trend that's happening, which is suddenly hiring companies want to see women and underrepresented minority candidates. And the reality is retain search and doing it yourself, leverage people's existing networks. And because the existing makeup of these teams and these organizations is very heavily middle-aged straight white male, that's what they get. So we, the aha moment was, oh, if we want to actually increase diversity in executive ranks, we need to change the structure of this industry. And there's a thirst within hiring companies for new models. And so we launched Aboveboard. And what Aboveboard is, is it's a transparent two-sided marketplace. So anybody who's VP level and above can join. And I would encourage everyone on this who's listening to this, who's VP level and above to go to aboveboard.com and join. You join and you see all of the opportunities from True and our seven other opportunity partners. So we actually create transparency in a market that hasn't existed before. And we're flipping the power dynamic so that candidates who really should have the power, they're the ones that have all the value in the market. You get to say, I'm interested in this board or executive level position. So free for members, executives, and it's paid for by our by our clients on the company or investor side. So that's above board. We, um, we started working in earnest in January with two, me and just two developers. And we took our first little bit of capital in in May and we just launched two weeks ago. So we're brand spanking new and already have, we have about, I think we have nine full-time employees right now. I have seven opens. That's another thing. People, please go to our website and check our careers page. We're hiring. Um, and, uh, we have seven, I already said opportunity partners that's paying clients and about 2000 members already. So for the first couple of weeks, we're just thrilled with the momentum that's above board. That is great. So again, the, and the companies are paying, uh, some type of, uh, membership fee, which is a lot cheaper than what they would pay normally a third of the, of the salary. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. The, the companies or investors pay a membership fee to draw, to have, be allowed to list things on the platform. Nobody can look through the, the database to search for individuals. It's all controlled by the executive. Um, they get the right to list there. And then there are three gradations that sit in between this, do everything yourself or have somebody else do everything. So there's three gradations, they pick which one they want and there's you know increasing cost with each option. Great, great, that, that sounds fascinating. And, and- and I can't wait to check it out. So um, entrepreneurs, right? These days going through a lot of challenges, right? Um, there's a small segment that are on a rocket ship, right? But uh, the rest are sort of um, struggling, right? Or at least to some extent, uh, at least most of them. What would you, what would you, what type of advice would you give to them during this difficult period? So I actually don't think that you do this any differently than you do entrepreneurship always. It's just a bigger 
challenge to face, but every company faces challenges. It just happens that right now, most companies are facing one together at the same time. You know, if you think about the 2009 funding just dried up utterly. 2001 clients just disappeared completely. So there, there are always these moments that are externally driven. There are also always moments in every company that are internal, right? You grew too fast and now you have to do a layoff. You're on one track and you realize it's not a big enough opportunity and you have to pivot. There are always challenges. So what works in those, I think is what also works here. And that is pretty basic. It's about resilience and it's about grit, right? Perseverance to the point where I actually think is most, entre most successful entrepreneurs have perseverance to the point that it's, that it's uh, of, right, beyond what's any normal or maybe, maybe is as much of a problem as it is a plus side. Uh, and none of that's novel. I think the thing that I would say that is true in these times in particular is as a successful entrepreneur, you have to balance really carefully or hold in your head this duality. You have to be really bullheaded and really sure you're right. Because a lot of people are always gonna tell you you're wrong even people you're selling to will tell you something doesn't work and you have to be like so sure you're right that you just keep pushing and at the same time, be completely open to whatever the world is telling you. So it may be a, a customer, potential prospect saying, you know, this doesn't work for us for reason X, Y, Z. It may be an investor telling you that's not going to work. Maybe your partner and employee saying this isn't and you have to have this openness, at the same time, you have this closedness. And I think more than ever in these moments, those are both critical. Because if you don't have the bullheadedness and the persistence and the just stick-to-itiveness, you're gonna fall apart before this is over. James and I were just talking before this started and I think we got at least another year. So buckle in. I got that from Bill Gates. It was I was sort of really bummed out yesterday after I listened to Bill Gates talking about that. I think he's probably right. I believe Bill Gates um, and Anthony Fauci too. And he says the same thing. Um, so it's about really having that stick to while listening because you may get a really quiet, thin signal right now and you've got to be open enough to hear it and say, oh, there's, I could, I could reposition this way maybe. Um, and then the last thing I, I would say, so this sort of, you got a, something that's generic and, applicable in a particular way during this time. And then the other is really concrete cash management. That's all that matters. You need to conserve cash to get through this. So this is why I say the year. I think you, if you're not in a position where you can raise more now based on your momentum and your traction, figure out, do whatever you have to do to make that cash last a year. I still have a couple of CEO coaching clients and happily they're both in positions now where they have almost three years of cash on their balance sheet because they took action early in all this to manage to the opportunity. And if your opportunity is right, not there right now, you need to keep that cash for when the opportunity comes back. So that's the other sort of real down and dirty, go look at your balance sheet and figure out how to make that cash last. Those are great bits of uh, advice, Lucinda. But what about speaking about funding? 
is there, you know, talk to us, give us sort of some insight into how you see the, the funding marketplace now. Is it, uh, even though entrepreneurs should have cash on hand, right, as much as possible, make it through this difficult time, is there hope? Uh, on the funding. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think there totally is. So, so if you look at the actual numbers, it depends a little bit. It looks, it, it's looking like early, very early stage seed and angel rounds are not, have not been, they've been they're about even, right? Depends on what numbers you look at, there, but really not nearly as bad as one would think. You get into A and B is more of an impact, but then if you've got good performance, the money's there for absolutely for later stage stuff. It was actually a real overflow of capital at the, at the, at the later stages. And, you know, one of the things that you also have to balance always is the macro and the micro. So the macro, even if it's a bad funding environment, if you're actually driving traction, so I'll tell you at above board right now, no problem raising capital whatsoever. It's actually sort of the opposite, right? We're in a, in a situation of riches and trying to figure out which of these options is the best one for us to, to take. Um, so you can always create your own local environment. It's like if it's raining and you have an umbrella, you're not getting wet. So it's both. It's being realistic about what that broader arena is. And ab deals are absolutely getting done. There's, this is not dry like it was in 2009. And look at the, compare those numbers, not nearly as bad. Um, I will say depressingly, the last quarter number, numbers for women were back down to the two, 2017 levels which is a bummer. And I'll also say the most amazing comparison on that I just heard was that Quibi, however you say that, um, lost in six months as much as all women were funded in 2019. Give you a little comparison. Um, but all that said, you can make your own micro environment, right? If you have traction, if you've got a great story, there absolutely is money out there. It may just be a little harder to find. Yeah, no, that's that's... That's comforting to hear, you know, that the money hasn't stopped, right? It's still there. And particularly for the good ideas, the good teams, that's great. So before we have some questions uh, that have been submitted and if anyone else has questions, please submit them now. Before we get the questions, you know, share with us just one thing for entrepreneurs, uh, some advice. So my number one thing, and I'll tell you, I'm very proud to say I've lived it at above board and seen the benefit. Number one thing, sell first, build later. Over and over again, I see this mistake of people taking money and taking, you know, a year and spending $2 million or some crazy amount to build a product and they never sold it. Go sell it first. If it's a, if it's a compelling value proposition, you should be able to close business before you have a thing. I don't care whether you're selling to enterprise. Enterprise is really great because sometimes you can get them to fund your development for you, hold on to more of your stock. If it's, if it's small business, if it's consumer, your value prop has to sell before you build. And what will happen if you do that is you'll know not just that it's gonna work, you'll know what to build because those customers will tell you what's important to them. You don't need a thing to sell. Um, I remember uh, you know, looking at businesses where we would early in the internet, we would literally just put up a page and buy AdWords. And there was literally nothing. We would just buy AdWords and see what the click-through rates looked like and see how many people would give us their email address. And that would give us a hint about whether or not it was worth pursuing an idea. So I think getting in market first, fast, is really the abiding, not particularly original advice. 
No, I think that makes a ton of sense. And all too often, right? The founder is focused on the product, right? If I can get this product right, it they'll come. When instead they should be investing in, uh, you know, sales or at least finding out, uh, finding yep. the first customers, uh, and then go back and, and and do it parallel fashion, right? Uh, That's right. Especially these days, right? It's, Building a product is so much. It's fast. fast. And with all the talent now out there, right? Because of this recession, we're in. Yeah, even a better time, you know, to get all that talent to get to scale quickly. But sales right. is the hard part, particularly in times like these. Okay, let's get the questions. Thank you so much for that. Um, okay, so first question is, um, what would you say are the three main concerns of a VC uh, with regard to startups that they've invested in going through this crisis? I don't know. I'm not a venture capitalist. I'm not sure I can answer them. Um, having worked with many, many over years through some hard times, um, their first is going to be cash and runway. Because if you've got cash and runway, you've got time to figure all sorts of things out, right? So that's going to be at the top of their list for sure. And then it's going to be what the what is the impact on your particular market, right? Is there some way to pivot to if it's bad? Is there a way to pivot to get to something that's better? Um, so I guarantee you those would be the top two and I'm beyond that. I don't know. Okay. Um, Lucinda is asking, I'm sorry, Lila is asking about, are you just hiring us based employees? She's lives, uh, right. she lives in Canada. We have a, we have a global uh, Canada. Partner. Yeah. Anywhere in North America and we will open Europe, uh, probably very early next year. Um, and then Asia PAC, I'm not sure when Asia PAC could be late 2021, could be early 2022. We already have listings and members globally. We just don't have people everywhere. And candidly, the only reason we're not in Europe already is it's, it's just a pain and expensive to set up. It's not that we, we already have business there. It, we just don't have the, we don't have the time or money right this minute to set up what we need to, to have those people. Right. And that just points to what we mentioned before about talent is everywhere now. This pandemic has flattened, you know, uh, the reality that they don't have to be geographic. That's right. By. And that opens up the world, right? And, and obviously, That's exactly right. More reasonable talent, too, uh, if necessary. Okay. So, got a bunch of questions here. What are the, what are the, both the, the best parts about being a CEO and the most challenging or difficult? difficult parts about being CEO? So I'll tell you, I, this one is a hard one for me to answer. I can answer, I will answer what's the best parts for Lucinda and what's the most challenging for Lucinda. I think it's different for everybody with a different personality. I often will hear a CEO talk about this and just think like, really? Um, and I hear other CEOs react to things that are assumed that I feel like, and they're like, and they think, really? So um, I love this job. And um, what I love about it most is the team. I really, really love working with my team. What I love second, and but that could be anywhere, right? It's not special about being a CEO other than the like really amazing people that, you know, that I get to work with because they're so senior. Um, number two is I've always been a jack of all trades, master of none. So if you look at my career, every company I've done is in a different, well, I did two that are sort of in a related space, but basically all different spaces through my whole career. Uh, I love to learn um, and I love, I get bored super easily. Um, and so I love the fact that in a day I can do literally seven or eight completely different things, 
right? And I'm thinking really strategically. And then how do I post this thing on LinkedIn in the way that it's going to get the most engagement, right? I just love the breadth and the, and the span and the fact that you're growing all the time. Um, and I, I'm just as an individual, super independent, always have been. And so I don't, I mean, I was a pretty good employee, I guess, when I was an employee, but even as an employee, I just did what I thought was the right thing. I never paid much attention to what my job was supposed to be. And so I really love that I get to do whatever I think is the right thing to do. Um, the things that are challenging. So I think the one that any feeling person will tell you is when you have to make decisions that impact individuals in a negative way. That's really hard. Um, and by that, for me, it's really layoffs. If you have to actually um, fire somebody in terms by which I mean terminate employment for poor performance, that actually doesn't bother me. It did when I was earlier in my career. I, I now realize that, that the issue there is bad fit and those people shouldn't be in your company. So that's become really not, uh, not such a terrible thing. And then I will say, I actually said this to my attorney yesterday, the very thing, the one thing I just hate is reading legal documents. And I'll tell you, you as a CEO, you read a lot of legal documents. Um, I'm not trained for it. I'm dyslexic, so it's really hard. Um, so that's probably, that's really the thing I like the least. And I enjoy everything external. So I enjoy conversations like this. I love working. I love, I actually love pitching for investing. I learn a ton through that process. I love selling. I love recruiting. Anything external is um, a real happy place for me. As long as it's not too much, I'm super introverted. So I can only do it about three or four hours a day, but I do really enjoy it when I'm doing it. That's great. It's a great job. If you like it, it is a great job. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with more with all the things you've just said. Uh, speaking of the law though, there's a, a, Trish is a woman of color and she's a young female lawyer and she has questions about, and she's thanking you for investing in change, you know, with above board. Um, but she wants to know if you have any advice for her to, for, to grow and to learn in the tech and business space. So, you know, how can she become more attuned to this industry? Um, you know, for someone. Yeah. Who so I have two, I have two ways and I'm really conflicted about the second one. So the first is read everything you can in the old days. It used to actually be great to go to events and meet people. I mean, hopefully we get back to that. And I would really suggest that there's something different about just being at a cocktail party and talking to people and seeing the things and you get to learn it. There's a lot you learn through osmosis. So definitely all of those things that are scalable. The other thing that I will say really works and I'll share why it gives me Ajuda. Um, is to volunteer your time. So there's lots of, and I mean with individual companies, not with organizations. So if you're an attorney, there are so many companies that would love to be able to call you and just not get, not as their official lawyer, but just to talk through something or to know whether they need to call a real lawyer about something um, to get your, you, you've got a way of thinking. In my experience, good lawyers have a way of thinking that's really valuable, very different from mine, right? I'm all about upside and opportunity and lawyers tend to be trained to think about what could go wrong. And that's valuable from a business perspective, not only a legal perspective. The reason I hate that answer is that I think that it um, preferences the privileged because not everybody has the time or resources to give their work for free to a for-profit company. So 
kind of both sides, but I do want to share it because I do think that it's a great way to get experience. It certainly is one of the things I did earlier in my career was I would just, I, t- I did tons of work for friends and people I would get to know just for free because I, you get to understand how it all works by doing that. But I was lucky. I was in a position where I could do that. And it's part of giving back to the startup. Now it is. Now it's different, Jim, right? Because now it's, now I'm happy to do it. Right. Um, right. Right. This minute, I'm actually super time constrained. But before I'm like, just, I, I love it. It's mostly now. I mean, I definitely learn from every interaction, but it's sort of 80 20 I'm giving. But back in those days, it was 80 20 I was taking. Um, and so that's a little that's sort of a different equation. So, Trish, you can reach out to me or, or listen to what we can connect you with, certainly with businesses that could use your uh, your intellect and your guidance so um, and man do we need more women of color in this scene there are so few so i would really encourage you to do that okay next question what would you suggest aspiring entrepreneurs do to improve their adaptive capacity as they encounter complex challenges and disruptions like we're going through now uh so i feel like i am utterly unequipped to answer that question um it's for me it's genetic it's literally just genetic i love maybe it's maybe it's genetic plus i grew up in new york city so give me the pace of change i'm so happy when i get a curveball because like now i get a new thing to figure out um and i know that's really atypical wiring so i count myself really very very lucky in that way i i guess maybe as i say that one thing that we've learned so much in the last 20 years or so about the way our brains work is that to a really startling degree, we choose how we react to things. We choose our cognition. And so maybe it's about training yourself to have that kind of reaction versus the, oh no, somebody's upset my apple cart reaction. And if you do that sort of thing, I mean, I know this is true in general. I've done this with myself or other kinds of topics is you train yourself over time to react in a positive way, in a more open way, and then you're able to act, right? So I think what happens, I end up being able to, 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 to go fast. I know, I know that my cycle time is much faster than most people's. And it's because I think the stimuli comes in, I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then I'm able to act. So I've taken out the, oh my God, now everything's whatever, right? I've eliminated that. And the reality is you're going to have to react. So there's no value to that. It's like worrying. Worrying makes no sense to me. It's, it doesn't actually do, it's unproductive, right? It's a waste of energy and time. And in a way, reacting when things change is similar. Got it. So um, before I forget, Trish, if you want to, uh, Esther Surgeon, who covers all the tech industry in, in this day, is, is on, the, on the call. So you, can, you should connect with Esther Surgeon, New Jersey Tech Weekly, in addition to reaching out to me. Um, she has a great network uh, as well. So what is the most common trait among, among all successful CEOs, Lucinda? What do you think? I don't know if there is a common trait. Um, I mean, people do this job in so many different ways. I guess the ones who are successful are all driven in some way, right? Most of us are intense, whether it's sort of big intense or internally intense. I, you can't be dumb, um, although there's a pretty broad spectrum there, right? You can have really great people skills, or I, I don't think there's actually that much. I think those are almost stereotypes that aren't valuable. I think people can make this successful in almost every way. Got it. Okay. 
Um, what advice would you give someone who is trying to start their business and get their ideas off the ground? Just do it, right? Don't write a business plan. I really honestly don't write a business plan. Um, just do it. There isn't anything else, right? So if back to what I said earlier, your, your first thing is to sell. You don't need anything other than you and your idea. Go sell something. There isn't any magic to it, right? It's like, I, I do, I often see this, especially I've done um, lots of talks at schools and things. And there's always this like, how do I start? You, you, nothing special, you just start. And usually start means you send an email or you pick up the phone. Um, that's like it. I often, I used to talk a lot about this analogy. I used to, I skied, I learned how to ski really late in life. Um, and I still, and I haven't skied in two years because I'm in New York now, but when you're, when you, when you, it's a very steep slope. So if you're going to go down something that literally could be about like that and you get to the top and these are your skis, your, your feet are like where my ring is, you're like this. So your skis are just hanging over this empty space and you're looking down this thing. And, and I'm just always thinking to myself, this is insane. Like what, what, what? I do. I go through this whole mental thing of like, can I get back on the chairlift? Am I allowed to do that? How do I get down? Is there another way down here? And then eventually you just sort of say, well, okay, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm going to fall and slide down. I've done that before. It's actually not that terrible. Snow up your jacket, but you're fine. And then you just go. Right. And so all that time that I stood there and wondered whether I get back on the chairlift, you're just wasted. Just go. And, and entrepreneurship is literally exactly the same. Like you're looking down, you know what's going to happen. You don't have what you're worried about. Just go. Worst thing that happens is you fall and get snow up your jacket. Again, great advice. And you know, things have changed over the years, Lucinda. We used to talk about in academia, right? I used to run the Entrepreneurship Center for many years. We used to talk about the business plan. That, and fortunately, it was always, it was always so, I don't know, I wasn't a big fan of it, right? And fortunately, now we're, we're sort of advanced where, you know, you can get by with just putting the idea in, you know, a deck or, a, you know, yeah. PowerPoint deck or even a power graph or, 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 or just a phone call, as you say, just talk to people about the idea and don't get sort of uh, too consumed with uh, a static document, which should be changing all the time anyway, because it's in a disruptive environment. Everything changes all the time. That's right. The thing that people, the business, I think that business plans, the reason I hate them um, is they imply a level of certainty that is just wrong. It's impossible and wrong. So I talk a lot with people about, the, about this difference between accuracy and precision. So you'll see a business plan, the business plan this always cracks me up. You know, it's an early stage company and they've got projections and the projection is like, uh, 942,639 and 42 cents. Like what? You just made it up. Just say a million. You just made it up. What are you doing? That's precise. It's precise, but it's not actually accurate. Right. And so business plans do the same thing in terms of making you write all this stuff out. You're just making it all up at the early stages. Now that said, it should all be thought through, right? What, Every element of that should be thought through. And if you're going to go raise money, you better have all of it thought through. It's just that your, your thinking is a hypothesis. It's not a certainty. And the business plan, as James said, it's like a static thing that implies some kind of certainty. It just is not true or right. I see it all the time. It's funny. I see it all the time with um, 
application processes for like for accelerators and angel funding. And they're like these endless forms and you want to fill this stuff in. I always think if I have to go through those for some reason, and sometimes like there's an investor who's going to come in and you got to, I have to go do that. I always think this literally is screening out the people who are going to be successful building a company. You don't build a company by filling all the boxes in on the forms. It's not the way it works. It works by being creative and, and shuck and jive and you figure out your way around things. And I think the business plan is the worst case of the fill in of 47 boxes on the form. Got it. All right. So we're coming down to the close of this session. Uh, here's a question probably from someone who's young. What advice would you give to someone who isn't sure what they want to do in life yet? I would give the exact same advice. Just do it. I had no idea. I took a job as a secretary. In fact, all my effort, I'm a martial artist. All my effort was towards training. I just wanted to pay my rent. And here I found this thing that is absolutely fabulous. Well, guess what? I had three jobs before that. They weren't fabulous. I just changed to a different thing. I think one of the real challenges that's happened for young people at the more right at like the, the higher highfalutin schools is you get this you're trained into this narrative that there's some kind of a steps you go through and you end up successful in life life doesn't work that way right life is going to send you right and get buffeted by the winds all the way through your passion could you're on this thing maybe your passion is startups could turn out that you're passion is knife sharpening or something who knows i think early on it's about being open to the to whatever is coming your way following things that seem interesting um well at the same time being super realistic so i for example i told you i had this massive student debt i put myself through penn and then wharton and i had this massive student debt and so i had to take a job that was going to pay their mortgage right nothing wrong with that i learned a bunch of things there so it's making it's making the most of every opportunity all within a context of there's no right answer. You don't like win in life. It doesn't work that way. And for sure it doesn't work that way. One of the things I'm saying is if you want an extraordinary life, you actually have to do extraordinary things, right? You don't have an extraordinary life by following this next step path. So I would just say to a young person, like be open to it. Oh, and one other super important thing I should have said earlier, James, is keep your personal burn rate low. One of the really things I will take credit for that was really smart is I always have lived way below my means because that gives me freedom. So it's valuable to me. I now have a nice car and a nice apartment and all that, but I didn't for years and years and years. And that was totally worth the trade-off because what I was buying with an icky car was freedom. And so if you're young and you don't want to do yet, you know, you don't want to get like a nice job where you're, where you're getting paid a good salary, but you don't love it. And now you ramp up your lifestyle to fill that salary. Now you see something cool that comes by, you can't do it. Um, last thing I'll say, on the, and then I'll let, let Mr. James gonna wanna close is when I went from SEI to Infonautics, I took a 50% pay cut. When I went from Infonautics to Destiny, my first CEO role, I first took a 50% pay cut. So in a two year period, I took a 75% pay cut. And the reason I was able to do that was because I had lived below my means for all these years, had a little bit of savings. And then what happened? Well, it went up like a rocket ship after that, but I couldn't have done it. I literally couldn't have done it if I had been, you know, I had car loans and all this other stuff that people load up. So live below your means. 
I think that's super advice. One just a follow on and then we're going to end. Uh, would there would that be the same advice you give to your 12 year old self or would would there be some uh, difference? You know, if we go just a little lower uh, in the So age. if I go to my 12 year old self, um, I, I was so cute when I was 12. I was such a tomboy. Um, and all that I wore every day to school was engineer overalls, those ones with the blue and white stripes and a matching hat. Every picture of me in that era, I'm wearing the exact same thing. And they were high, I'm really, I mentioned earlier, I'm really tall, so they were all high waters, which, uh, you know, in that era, there, it was not cool. Like they weren't kicks. They weren't like cool jeans that were supposed to show your ankles. They, they were high waters. Um, and I think if I went back to that little girl, it would be nothing about career and all the rest. It would be around having the confidence in herself um, that in fact, I think turned out to be warranted. When I look back, I've done a couple of times really deep an analytical look at where, I've, uh, where at, the, at where I've done really poorly, right? Where my worst decisions, because mostly when I, when, when I do poorly in what I do, it's because I made a bad decision about something. Literally, I did this uh, two years ago every single one in the prior three years had been because I didn't have enough confidence in my convictions, right? I knew what the answer was and I believed somebody because I thought they had more experience than I did, or I thought they knew something I didn't, or it just wasn't true. And so that's what I would say to the 12 year old is you, sh you, you deserve to be confident in, in yourself. Um, and I do think that is for sort of everybody, imposter syndrome, I think it's particularly true for girls. Great, great way to close out. So leave us with a poem, Lucinda. Okay, so this comes out, of, this is just one stanza. I will only read you one stanza of a ridiculously long poem um, by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, which I share because I was thinking about all this and I was thinking about, you know, I really am old for this game that we play. It's rare people are still playing this game at my age. And so this is um, his poem for the 50th anniversary of the class of 1825 from Bowdoin College in Maine. And there's a bunch of Latin first I won't bore you with. And then he says in the last stanza, what then shall we sit idly down and say, the night hath come, it is no longer day. The night hath not yet come. We are not quite cut off from the labor by the failing light. Something remains for us to do or dare, even the oldest free tree some fruit may bear, not Oedipus, Colonius, or Greek ode, or tales of pilgrims that one morning rode out of the gateway of the Tabard Inn, but some other something would we but begin, for age is opportunity no less than youth itself, though in another dress, as the, and as the evening twilight fades away, the sky is filled with stars, invisible by day. Lovely. Thank you so much, Lucinda, and all the best for you and your new startup and your, and your family. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.